So thank you all for coming to Cock Talk. He has trouble counting change with the with the with the hands thing. Wait, wait, stop. Sorry. Yes, but I don't yeah. think that Dana Carvey's movie um, coming out at that same time was really that big a problem for our country. I still don't know why you're making such a big deal about September 11th, 2001. I mean, I fucking hate you. Well, you know, they don't necessarily need to be anathema, but they are definitely on different ends of the spectrum. Oh boy, how? See, I have every, a genetic predisposition every, against redheads, so because yeah, because you are one, right? Yeah, combustion. Yeah, we've yeah. heard it before. Yep. The only time I change the setting so, is when so, I take the uh, okay. hair trimmer down to the nether regions. Like that's the only time. Other than that, it's all just a two. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I just don't know how about you all? I'm joking. I use V. After the four Gospels, what's the next book of the Bible? Acts. Okay. And after that, it's Romans, isn't it? I'm drunk. Um, yeah, Romans. Okay, yeah. Yes. Okay. And if you look at the 15th chapter of Romans, okay, uh, you will find that it actually mentions uh, the ability to arm yourself. That's why it's AR-15. Thank you. Checkmate atheists. And, and anytime there's action in the ring, Scott Hall is taking all the bumps because Kevin Nash kind of sucks as a worker. order of English here in Northern California. And uh, <clears throat> it's interesting that uh, just this afternoon, my personal life and my professional life kind of intersected. Uh, my, my wife and I got to have a conversation with my son uh, about the consequences of not listening to teachers. And uh, I was not the one who brought it up. But uh, in, in the process of explaining to my son about why it's important to listen to his teacher, just for reference, my son is four and we're talking about a, a, a daycare teacher. But um, in, in the context of explaining to him why it's important to listen to our teachers, my wife decided to mention to him that daddy had to send one of his big kids out of class today uh, because he was not listening. And I got to try to simplify that whole interaction into terms that my four-year-old son would understand. Um, the long and the short of it is the, the kid uh, is a consistent pain in my neck anyway. But uh, today he, he decided that he, he, he asked to go to his resource room to work on some stuff. And I said, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Fine. He went to his resource room. The teacher in the resource room got on his case about misbehavior in that room. He said, fine, I'll go back to Mr. Blaylock's room, got up, left that classroom, came back to my room, and then told me that he was back in my room because, well, I got my work done. <laughs> 
At which point the other teacher walked into my classroom and started looking very intently at his back. At which point I'm like, oh no, you're fucked, son. <laughs> oh, you. <laughs> I can tell already this is going to go badly for you. Um, at which point um, I found out what the actual interaction had been in her room. Um, and and he he got to to he he got to take a trip to the office for leaving leaving the other classroom without without uh permission and uh defiant essentially defiance of a lawful order and and fucking lying to my goddamn face mm. so like i'm sorry three strikes you're fucking out get out like we're done have fun bye-bye so so i got to i got to try to find a way to simplify that to explain it to my four-year-old son <laughs> <laughs> and and you know it's it's a wonderful exercise in in kind of examining okay i'm pretty sure i did the right thing there and like yeah okay i did do the right thing but how am i going to explain this to my kid like <laughs> yeah so i don't know if you've ever had an analogous experience with your own kids or not but that was that was a new one for me so who are you and what have you got going on well, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin and drama teacher up here in Northern California. <clears throat> and I think that uh, it's it's a good time to share that I had the opposite end of the spectrum kind of story. Uh, my daughter informed me that uh, they've had a sub uh, that they complained to the teacher about. Uh, and the teacher made sure that that sub got put on the no-fly list. Uh, and then they had another sub. And uh, this other sub was also according to my daughter again take it with the salt lick but uh the entire you know she's not one to lie about those kinds of things she'll lie yeah, about whether yeah. or not she brushed her hair um yeah. but and she doesn't really do that very much but you know she will fudge um but uh she said yeah this 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 is another sub who is generally unpleasant i said okay um have y'all gone and talked to your principal about this and no no i said go ahead and do that I, and she's like, well, you know, I said, did, was the sub saying or doing things that were mean? And she said, yeah. I said, did you stop them? And she looked at me. I said, look, you could get in trouble in school and you will not get in trouble here if you were standing up for the right thing or if you're standing up for other people who were getting picked upon. Uh, and she looked at me. I said, now, I also understand that that's an awful lot of pressure to put on a nine-year-old. And I also understand that that's an awful lot of courage that that takes to buck authority but let me explain to you how to do it. And I took her through polite and civil, vibrant disobedience. Uh, and just, I will not be doing that because that is wrong. I'm sorry, but apologize and thank them. Uh, and, you know, and then take, observe, and then, observe yeah. the social forms carefully. Right. Yeah. And then I told her, I was like, in union talk, we call this do it and then grieve it. And so I've amen. I've, hallelujah. Yep. I've been teaching her how to do that. But then also I will absolutely back your play. And if you go talk to your principal, I will make sure to follow up with your principal because she knows I will. Uh, and <laughs> kind of broke the paradigm for her. Like you don't just have to suffer through shitty adults. You can actually do something about shitty adults because they shouldn't be shitty adults. And I said, you know, I'm going to trust your judgment when it comes to that, that you're not being capricious and it's not just a, 
well, they're a little stricter than I'm used to or whatever. Like, or if I you, don't like them or whatever. Right. If, if, you know, they're guilty of the sin of not being the teacher that you love. You know, I said, if, if it's a legitimate complaint, I'll back you all the way. Um, and, and you do the right thing and I've got your back. So the opposite of listen to your teacher. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, because we're, we're dealing with different age groups and different circumstances, but yeah. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. But just you know. kind of a fun little, uh, yeah. <laughs> little, uh, little, little opposite little... symmetry. Yeah. 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 So. Very cool. Hey, um, I got a question for you. Okay. Do you use Amazon? I I really wish for the sake of, of my sense of moral righteousness that I could mm-hmm. get away with saying no. Yeah, no, I still do too. But I mean, uh, but I can't. I also still use cash that says "In God We Trust," and I'm an atheist, so you know. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. yeah one that's of them, fair. one of them is the medium of exchange, and one of them is a merchant that you do business with. So I mean, like I'm willing to give you more moral leeway about the the money and in God we trust than, than my like, use of I'm, Amazon that I'm going to give myself for use of Amazon. I mean, like, I use it too. I mean, this, yeah. this is not a commercial for Amazon. In yeah, fact, no, this, this whole episode will be decidedly not a commercial for Amazon. Okay. Um, well, there we go. So uh, yeah, we use them partly because of their ubiquity, right. And their yeah. ability to, to make things very easy to access. Yeah. It's, it's the easy button of, of day-to-day yeah. retail stuff. Right. Right. You know, and, and especially during a pandemic, um, oh yeah, yeah. Now the way they treat their workers is god fucking awful. Is shit. Yeah, but they still provide a product that like clearly consumers want. Yeah, yeah. Well, what if I told you that this was not the first time that, that happened? Are we going to talk about railroad barons? No, no. Oh. In the mid 1400s, the English countryside was rife with country festivals and public gatherings breaking out in dance. Not to the level of a rec center under the threat of wicked developers, lest they raise enough money to save the buildings by the weekend in the 1980s movies, but still, dance was a pretty typical way for English peasants to gather and enjoy each other's company. However, because it's England, that's largely ignored and unstudied. I love the look on your face. (laughs) I mean, I thought I had had something clever there, but you just completely pulled the rug out from under me here <laughs> okay now a lot of uh this dancing has been lost to traditional historiography due to the fact that uh there's a lack of written record of such gatherings and practices because they're english peasants in the 1400s i have however managed to find uh and read through some of the diagrams and the manuals on this dancing and they're about as interesting as they could sound to a non-musician are, however, are we going to talk about morris dancers yes we are Oh hell yes! Okay, I am here as a mm-hmm. as an annual. I mean, up until this past year, because of you know politics mm-hmm. and COVID, as a as a nearly annual uh, uh, participant in the Dickens Fair, mm-hmm. um, I am here for this Morris dance all content. Right. Nice. Like, dude. All right. Yeah. So the worshipful, the worshipful company of goldsmiths, also known as the wardens and commonality of the mystery of goldsmiths of the city of London, mm. was recorded as paying <laughs> seven shillings to a troop of Morris dancers. Nice. At that time, they were called Morris dancers because spelling was not yet 
standardized. Uh, standardized. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. By moving my hand up and down, you were able to understand mm. that I meant standardized. <laughs> <laughs> Codified. Yeah. So ruled. This was ruled. 1448. This was the first mention of Morris dancers in the English written history. Morris dancing comes from a Flemish term. Of course it does. It's Morisque dance. Dance with an S. Which which translates to Moorish dance. Uh, In 1494, Henry VII was entertained by a similar type of dance on Christmas. No shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Now you think about Moors, though, you think southern Spain, northern Africa, you think colorful, you think the traditions of flamenco come from these places. So it would make sense if you trace your way back that you could get to stylized Moors dancing. Okay. Eventually. Like Eventually, I'm, again. Yeah, I mean, if you if you trace the the evolution and 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 see it as an evolutionary chain. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Now, from the villages to the big city of London, Morris dancing uh, was brought into the court mask by Henry VIII. And from there, it worked its way back out into the professional entertainment circuits and it disseminated in a more codified way to the masses. So that's how we get there. Now, as such, country folk dancing in England took on a decidedly Spanish, Moorish, and Italian flair as Morris worked its way back through the masses, colliding and abrading and absorbing and mutating the country folk dances in various regions. I just figured out where we're going to end up, and I'm not going <laughs> to say it right now, but wow, you went a long way back. Okay, cool. <laughs> Holy cow. All right. Anyway. <laughs> By the mid 1600s. See, people, when they click on this, they'll see the title. So they'll be like, poor Ed. <laughs> but... <laughs> and, and then, and then, and then, however, I'll yeah. get credit for, for the, the leap in, in yes. cognition that I made here that I was able to go from 1440s to where we're going to end up. Oh, yes. Okay. Most definitely. So by the mid-1600s, Morris dancing seemed to be the standard for peasant workers' dances at public gatherings. So much so that when Oliver Cromwell was in charge, he suppressed the White Sun Ales Festival, or Whitson? Whitson. Whitson. Ales Festival, and by extension, dancing, because it's Oliver Cromwell. And, and Oliver Cromwell was the biggest dick in English history. And I don't mean that he had the biggest dick. Well, in that's English why they history. called them the round heads, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well done. Well done. I'm not even mad about that one. No, <laughs> he, no actually, he was. The guy who came in for the restoration had the biggest dick. Yeah, this is true. Yes, there <laughs> you go. Waved it everywhere. Yep. <laughs> so speaking of Charles II... Uh, when he came back <laughs> into power. And, and, and you know, the funny thing is when Charles uh-huh. II came back, everybody was like, oh yeah, no, big dick energy. We're okay with it, even though yes. he waved it everywhere. Yeah, it's like... Because Oliver <laughs> Cromwell had been such a massive dingus. I mean, think, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, because we just dealt with a huge dick, please show us your huge dick. Like, yeah, there you go. I mean... It's yes, called priming. Kind of, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I do find it interesting that England went from having kings to having no kings to saying fuck it i know we killed the last one but we want to go back to kings well okay 
And again, you mm-hmm. really have to look at the example of just exactly what a massive tool. Yes. Uh, Oliver, specifically Oliver Cromwell. Like yes. this, is, this is one of those cases where I really have to. Had it been other people. Had it. Yeah. Like, like. Yeah. I don't you know, go with great man very populist, often. Populist history is, is yeah. awesome and like entirely valid. Mm-hmm. But every so often you come to a bottleneck point in history where you're like, had it been anybody fucking else? Yes. Like had it had it been had it been some other roundhead officer, had it been somebody who was not mm-hmm. who didn't have such a massive maypole up his ass, right? As Oliver fucking Cromwell. Yeah. Then maybe the people of England might not have been so angry at, at, at him that they would have been like, no, 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 bring back the fucking monarchy. We want the monarchy back. This is bullshit. Like, Again, we beheaded the last guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we made the other guy nine inches shorter. But we like, actually want to bring back his, was it? No, Charles I died, then Charles II. His son. We're going to yeah. bring back his son. Um, or it, it wasn't his brother. No. No, it was it James was, Charles Charles James. So yeah. So no. It, what what happened was uh, it was um, the 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 Stuarts. Right. So James, and then he had his son Charles. Yes, yeah, James, and then and then Charles, mm-hmm. and uh, Charles got nine inches shorter, mm-hmm. and then um, Cromwell was in charge, and then. It was uh, the the next Charles was the Prince of Orange. He he was not directly descended from the Stuarts. It was his wife who was the connection. Are you sure you're not mixing up uh, with William and Mary? I am mixing up with yeah. William and Mary. Never mind. Yeah, this is Charles II. So this is Charles the son. Yes, this is Charles the son. Yeah, because then then his brother James the second ends up as well yes so and then goes, we have bonnie yeah. prince charlie right and and that whole debacle yeah and i say that speaking as a scott so charles anyway. ii does come back into power it's called the restoration yes um iron man runs around with like a feather in front of his penis uh there's pineapples involved and corgis and it's just it's wonderful you haven't seen the movie restoration oh. with robert downey jr Running around I, naked with a quill in front of his dick. I have not. You're missing out. Uh, Apparently, I, you know, <laughs> on the one hand, I feel like I am. On the other hand, I feel like you've said everything I need to know about it. <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to find out anything more. It did give me a good idea for how to use a four post bed sexually. Okay. Yeah. So that rekindled my interest. But anyway, carry on. There you go. So uh, Charles II comes back into power. It's yes. the restoration. He restores spring festivals, dancing, and people get to get together and dance again. Now, Morris dancing is typically a rhythmic stepping dance, wherein the dancers are typically wearing bells yes. or bell pads on their shins and wielding any number of implements, depending on where they're from, swords, sticks, hankies, to aid them in the dancing or or all of the above right now uh and and that is of course a more modern version which would yeah, say which, which oh we're going to combine synthesizes and, multiple and i got no styles. problem with that i think that's wonderful dance is a wonderful thing keep it up yeah um 
Usually there's six to eight dancers in two lines, although there are plenty of other formations and styles. Uh, but the through line tends to be six to eight dancers and an uncomfortable amount of blackface. <laughs> depending depending on the troupe and where it's being performed. Right. Yes. So it grew alongside and influenced English country dancing. In the 1700s, square dancing was finally documented in England, though, as is typical, the documenting comes around long after the thing has already existed. Mm -hmm. I found a diagram for square dancing from a book called The English Dancing Master, which had the monopoly on dancing manuals from the mid 1600s until the early 1700s. And while Morris dancing was typically just troops of men, English country dancing and square dancing involved men and women because you've got festivals for towns and villages and you've got everybody getting together in the public square. Okay. And because, Mm -hmm. and this was a point that was, that was impressed upon me Mm -hmm. um, doing Shakespeare in college. Dancing was one of, one of the very few contexts Mm-hmm. in which men and women could socially mix socially interact and have physical contact yes and and it, it came up because uh, i was in a production of uh, much ado about nothing mm-hmm. in my sophomore year of college mm-hmm. and the ending the, the ending of the play anybody who's familiar with with much ado uh will remember that at, at the end of the play um benedict says you know bring bring music let let us all dance right and um you know the 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 father of the brides uh, or the father you know the, the mm-hmm. yeah hero uh, says no no yeah, yeah yeah says says no no dancing after and then and then benedict says no no dancing now mm-hmm. and <laughs> what what the director of the show who was a shakespearean scholar from from the the royal theater mm-hmm. uh what he what he pointed out to us was um you know dancing was uh recognized by everybody as being uh uh a a um and now i'm losing the word but a, but an allegory there we mm-hmm. go for intercourse <laughs> like like the audience of shakespeare's play would have realized no 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 we're 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 gonna dance now because that's 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 what we want to do that's a good right. time yeah you know and um you want to dance with somebody you want to feel yeah. the heat with somebody remarkable that a part of my brain had gone there yep wow yeah um and i'm not even mad so brings uh, brings, but, uh brings home the sadness of dancing with myself oh there we go nice mm-hmm. nice idle reference there so anyway yeah and 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 so of course when you're not performing <laughs> because because performative dance would have been something like well you know if a woman's doing that it's kind of scandalous because you're sure performing when you're when you're participating celebratory instead celebratory, of yes yes, it, yes in, instead of yeah being celebratory instead of performative then then yeah you're going to have that that's going to be co-ed because that's one of the few things that was co-ed yeah and keep in mind, these festivals are typically around uh, saints days, feast days, harvest days, all the things that bring a community together. Yeah. And celebrations. This, yes. These outpouring of celebrations is a way of 
further tying social bonds together, keeping people bonded, keeping the English English in a lot of ways so that when they do have to go and throw pointy sticks at the French, they're all down for it because they're doing it not just for themselves, not just because they've been conscripted, but England. also, yes, you know, and, and it does add to the national character. This, okay, there, yeah. Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a wonderful book called Dancing in the Street, which I'm going to recommend at the end of all this. Okay. Um, but uh, it's 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 about these, these, um, not spontaneous, but she writes about spontaneous uh expressions of joy. Uh, but in and to get there, she talks about stuff like this, so. Okay. Um, square dancing tended to specifically involve couples too, which means people who are a courtin are now being seen in public a courtin. So now you start to see more codified physical contact that is acceptable between two people whose parents are either in negotiation or if you're poor, who are kind of making these decisions on their own. So, okay. That, that brings up a question that, sure. that I, I don't know if either one of us is prepared to really answer, but that immediately makes me wonder what was the threshold line for, because mm -hmm. I mean, we all know, and I've, I've made the point, I can't even tell you how many times to my students in, in sixth and seventh grade history that mm -hmm. like, you know, historically speaking, marriage was a contract you entered into between families. Right. So, so then the question is when, when you, when you, when you say it that way, to mm -hmm. me that, you know, mm -hmm. if you're poor, that individuals are the ones making this decision because the family doesn't have enough money for anybody to give two shits. Right. Where do you think the dividing line was there? Much like, higher. What was, what was the, what was the much the higher economic... than people, much higher would, than people would believe because if you had generational landed wealth, then you had to be much more careful about how you're going to invest that and grow it. And therefore the decision was far less likely to be a romantic one and one led by the two romantic partners. The lower the wealth, the less stable, as in real estate, the, the more liquid, the more new, uh, frankly, the less, uh, you know, we've had this since uh, the, the days of, I don't know, uh, the what's conquest. the guy? Yeah, I was going to say the guy who got shot in the eye. Um, but, you know, we've had this since Henry. since Henry. Was it Henry or Harold? Henry, Henry is the one okay. who got, who got the Shot arrow the under his okay. eye and that I, I make a big point to tell my kids what a, what a tough son of a bitch he was, even though he looked like a nerd. Right. You know, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've had the land since then going back or, yeah. you know, we were one of the original people that put the pen in King John's hand kind of thing. Yeah. When it's uh, your middle class, when it's your city leaders, the young have more of a say in guiding and initiating and you know the parents have veto power yes but very mm -hmm. often you don't want to really pull that card unless you really have to yeah. um so it was it was Keep that powder dry yeah you know um and in an era um, before a gunpowder was a common you know right <laughs> but yeah but you know and and you know you uh ultimately you want these marriages to be stable so so that you can have social security so that means oh they're in love well wasn't my choice but you know let's make sure that you know that this is this is the family it, it's less about okay we need an alliance with these people and right. more about is the family acceptable yes yeah so which long is, as which is case, a very different bar yes uh, you know and again that veto power is only will this fuck us up and if it won't <laughs> fuck us up then all right fine all right fine so, 
there are other scholars who know far more about these things yeah than I. yeah yeah. But in the early 1800s, England in England, English country dancing and French dancing combined to form the quadrille, quadrille, quad, ah, quadrille, quad, that, which was specifically a dance for four <laughs> couples in a square. <laughs> so, Sorry, just, just one of one of the truisms, one one of the rules of our we talked about. We got to codify yes, the rules of our podcast. Yes. One of the rules of our podcast is if it's a French word, Damien's just not going to know how to pronounce it. Like ever. as a rule, like yeah, yeah just like yeah. We're done. Okay. Anyway, sorry. That's okay. It's this was not the first mention of square dancing, but this was the first formally codified dance that was set as such. And when folks started coming over to the newly formed United States of America, they, of course, brought their cultures with them. This meant that the quadrille uh, mostly was something that aristocratic American effete snobs did, because consider the amount of wealth that it took to come over from Europe. And George Washington, uh, for example, was evidently an incredible dancer in his youth uh, to those who can understand qualitative analyses of such things. Uh, so there was a social space for dancing already amongst the rich because yeah. they had the time and the money to come over here. And then they had the time to dance and it well, wasn't just large gatherings of society. Well, okay. So, so <laughs> to kind of piggyback on that, sure. think about what is involved in setting up a dance. You need space. You need to have you need to have a bunch of people with the time to mm-hmm. show up and the motivation to show up, mm-hmm. which I mean, you know, a dance is a good time. Okay, fine. But yeah. there's also a level of, even though it's a social gathering, there's a level of performativeness. And everybody had steps memorized back then up. too. Yes. And you had to have the time to learn how to do it, mm-hmm. to be part of the group. Yep. You know, it was it was a it was a sign of your breeding and your upbringing that you Absolutely. knew how to do it well. Um, and so, and as you already mentioned, you had to have the space, which yep. means, you know, you had to have a big enough house to have a room that you could dedicate to. Okay, we're going to take all the furniture out of this room. We're going to have a bunch right. of people dancing in here. Right. You know, so it was it was very much a status thing, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I, I, you know, you you mentioned, you know, talking about qualitative analysis of of George Washington, uh, George Washington's dancing skill. I, I yep. think it's it's enough to say that we have from multiple sources the agreed upon understanding that he had a reputation for being a very talented dancer as a young man. Yes, absolutely. Um, now, uh, apparently he had very lovely calves, which given the pants at the time and the way stockings worked, it's kind of hard to think of anybody not having lovely calves, but now John Adams apparently was not, oh, he was called his rotundity. Like, yeah, no, John, poor John Adams. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, you know, not everybody did. True. True. Well, John Adams was a working man. Lawyer. Yeah, a lawyer in Boston, you're working. Okay, good point. All right, fine. Now, originally, quadrilles were uh, used by the wealthy, especially after the American Revolution. Uh, They were part of American country life and courtly life, 
And so it's largely in the South that quadrilles were in regular rotation. That doesn't mean they didn't exist in, in New York and in uh, Massachusetts. There's plenty of urban areas there too. But they were a big part of plantation culture is what you're kind of trying to get across. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, again, though, I do want to emphasize as well that there were absolutely rural traditions in the North it is not purely a Southern thing. Uh, I mean, shit, there were slaves in the North for the longest goddamn time. So um, now they were in the South, quadrilles were in regular rotation. Uh, now they started off as memorized choreographed steps, as we had said. Uh, however, as many wealthy Southerners had a long tradition of enslaving people, uh, their enslaved persons would play the music and their enslaved persons would start to call out steps for people. And I love this little wrinkle because on some level, the wealthy whites in parties were stepping to what the enslaved black folks were shouting to them. It was, it was a socially acceptable inversion of the social order. Feels very Saturnalian. Very. It's, it's very much like uh, the Lord of Misrule. Yeah. You know, um, on a certain level. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was, it was, it was kind of with a, with a, with a small S Saturnalian. Yeah. Yeah. I you think know. that's a really good way to put it. Uh, so of course there were always regional dan uh, dances and therefore regional differences uh, in the Northeast, for instance, they lasted longer without having calls probably because you didn't have as many enslaved people up there. Uh, and the dancers themselves followed pre-memorized steps and the couples uh, faced each other um, and those couples initiated the steps. So just kind of egalitarian on some level, you know, we're switching off roles. Uh, yeah. There's nobody calling it out. We're all agreeing upon this. It's very Yankee. It feels very Yankee. Oh, it's intensely Yankee. Yeah. It's, it's very, very, look, we have, we have a set of rules. We're mm -hmm. all beholden to the rules. We have all agreed to the rules, right? Through an exhaustive period of town meetings, right? Where everybody got the opportunity to stand up. And Bob took four hours to tell us exactly why he thinks. Sorry, I'm getting off on a tangent. Sounds but, like you're talking but, about Presbyterians. Uh. <laughs> I might be. I'm, yeah. I'm just, I, you know, um, I, I, I am going to say um, I've, I've been at enough uh, staff meetings as a teacher. That, like, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> let's, let's talk about this. Um, <laughs> Which ends with, but I didn't eat the fish. <laughs> <laughs> which, which also ends with a whole bunch of people muttering, motherfucker, we want to go home. Right. Just, no, please. Janet, you don't get to ask one more question. This could have been an email. I love that you went straight to Janet because that's where I was going to. <laughs> like, no, sit down, no. shut up. Like, no. Now, this this could be an email. Please don't break this up now. Now, in the South, it was a little murkier than this. Uh, it's less of a square, more uh, more dependent on the caller. It's less synchronized, but it's also more on beat. Again, I think when you have enslaved peoples who have a long long tradition of dancing on the goddamn beat it even works for white people uh well, I, I think i think that's part of it i think uh -huh. 
there's there's a there's a parallel forming in my head here mm-hmm. and and this is this is probably reaching but but i i gotta i gotta get it out of my system we're also looking at two different cultures that had a very different um religious outlook yes and northern christianity was very much we are going to church to reinforce the yes social contract mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know we're we're all everybody the goodness who of is, god the goodness of god and everybody who is in the church is a registered paid your dues member mm-hmm. of the church and all of the decisions that get made by the church are made by the membership of the church who show up to the meetings correct and it's all very, very codified and, you know, it's, it's, you know, modern, modern day Methodist, you know, mainline Methodist is, yes. is like, this is a whole thing. It's orderly. It's intensely ordered. It's like, it's like so lawful. It hurts. Right? You know what? I'll, I'm going to back up from that. Actually. It's not orderly. Okay. It's structured. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Better way of putting it. Yeah. It's, it's just so organized. It fucking hurts. Right. Yes. Um, and then in the South, you have, at least after the Second Great Awakening, mm-hmm. um, you have religious traditions that are intensely cathartic. Yes. And intensely um, uh, immediate is the word that comes to mind. It is, it is, it is kind of ad hoc. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you have preachers who are traveling on a circuit. Yeah. Well, you interesting know, from, you say from that. church to church. Because the... The dancers, one couple goes around to all the others and initiates dance with with them. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, so, you, you caught me for for the audience. I mean, yeah. caught me in in the middle of a of a gulp of my beer. Yeah. <laughs> Which and then I'm gonna the, need for this episode. But yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, um, and the rest of the couples wait for them to show up. the parallels yes you know um but but there's 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 a very there's a very different character yes involved in in the in the underlying assumptions Mm -hmm. about the structure of what they're participating in and yet it is orderly too now this is where i'd say it's orderly and not structured Okay, because everybody takes their turn going round with that one couple. It's led by a couple. It's called out by an enslaved person. There is an order to it. There are people with hierarchical uh, roles. The hierarchy is the order is more important. Yes. Than the compact. Yes. The compact. Say that again without me interrupting. Go. The hierarchy is more important than the compact. Yes. The the traveling are more important than than other than other couples. Yep. And the role of the caller mm-hmm. is more important than the agreed upon steps. Yes. I mean, we basically just cracked the Mason Dixon line along Holy the cross. Shit. Yeah. So now here's here's where it gets more American. The further west you went, yeah, uh, the more diffusion of both happened into a recognized third form 
that was definitely a fusion of both. Okay. Now, culturally, all of this holds with our understanding of the various sectional cultures, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Does it also sound like any other physical, interactive, agreed-upon cooperative movement that we've heard about? Well, I immediately went to thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Oh, okay. That works. But that's because I'm like, you know, on my second beer of the night at this point, uh, rather than thinking of anything more concrete. So lay it on me. Physical interaction between groups of people. Uh Uh-huh. Somebody already kind of has a structure of how this interaction is supposed to go in mind. It is cooperative with the appearance of spontaneity. And the further west it goes, the the less regional it feels. Coming back to wrestling again? Yep. Okay, of course we are. (laughs) Because it's a Damien episode, so of course we're coming back to wrestling. (laughs) So, but okay, but but now that now that I've finally made that connection in my head, yes, it totally makes sense. Because, yeah, it does. Because the the regional styles of mm-hmm. of the north and the south and exactly. The, but you know, as you get west, collar collar jacket and collar, collar yeah, collar and elbow, uh, collar yep. and elbow wrestling versus mm-hmm. catch as catch can versus yeah, and everything else. Yep, all all meld together in, uh-huh. a, in a melting pot kind of way into mm-hmm. the monster that we now recognize as you know spangly murder gymnastics. Right now, okay. again, you go back to the north and you have the compact. Good always wins. This is how it goes. Yeah. In the South, you have the hierarchy. Good always fights the good fight. But ultimately, ends up losing. And then when you get West, it's a mishmash, but it's really good techniques. But but the technique is amazing. And and the outcome is God knows what. Yeah, which which is exciting and interesting, right? You know, it's funny. Hmm. It, It occurs to me that that like the social myth of the South as mm-hmm. we've codified it within yep. the confines of this podcast. You know, you, you wonder why it is nobody has ever looked at that and gone, well, okay, no, this is shit. Because, <laughs> like, why don't we build a myth where, you know, no, no, let's let's make the good guy win. Like, <laughs> like what, Because Jesus what isn't is here it? yet. Oh, right, okay. That's, That's I mean. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. We're, okay, because baptism. Okay, we're done. Okay, fine. Cool. So, anyway, All right. this episode is not about square dancing. This episode is about Henry Ford. Okay. See, God damn it. Okay, look. <laughs> I knew I knew that it was about square dancing, and I also yep. knew it was about Henry Ford. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but so. now you've obviated half of my cleverness by saying that. So, like, well, what the hell, man? Come on. Henry Ford was born in Michigan in 1863 was the next thing I was going to say. Okay. So, uh, the son of an Irish immigrant and uh, who was actually from English stock, um, as his father, and a Belgian-descended orphan Michigander mother. Uh, okay. All yeah. Right. So, an Englishman who moved to Ireland, who then came to married. America. Yeah, married a, a Belgian, Belgian, a woman of Belgian descent who was actually an orphan who was in Michigan. Born in Michigan. Okay. Yes. All right. yes. Yes. That's that's how the addition 
multiplication, yeah. whatever that was, worked in my head. I just, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Now, he didn't learn beyond eighth grade formally. Uh, okay. Henry Ford showed a proclivity for mechanical devices early on, becoming an amateur watch repairman at the age of 15. Okay. There were paragraphs on this shit about just the watches. If If you have ever wanted to know how much minutia goes into evil ass bastards in their bootstrap stories read books about henry ford um (laughs) oh my god oh well yeah okay yeah all right i see here's the thing i can Mm -hmm. see how being a how working as a watchmaker Mm -hmm. watch repairman repairman yeah he didn't make them Okay. Okay. Fix them. I can Mm -hmm. totally see how that being what you did for eight hours, 12 hours, whatever of your work day Mm -hmm. could really have some profound impacts on your view of the universe. It kind of fucked up Dr. Manhattan pretty hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To to one example, Siler from heroes. Yes, that's actually the direction that I was going in mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. Um, you know, cuz cuz you are you are always elbow metaphorically, you know, mm-hmm. elbows deep in a device that is incredibly precise. Yep. And literally engineered to to inhuman tolerances. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And simultaneously, even though even though everything that you're working with is uh, utterly uh, honed to mm-hmm. a to a to a, a diamond sharpness, you are also dealing with something where okay, if I just take this part out and replace that part with another part exactly like it, I've solved the problem. Yes. Everything, everything has a concrete solution. Mm -hmm. There is always a direct line of cause and effect. Yep. That is, that is absolutely precise. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely, I can, I can tell you exactly how this part points to this part points to this part points to this part. Mm -hmm. That leads and your to manipulation three of it will make it work or not. Oh, yes. Excellent. Yes. So um, that's when he's 15. Yeah. He's repairing <laughs> watches at 15. Oh, he's fucked. Amateur wise, though. Like, right. he's oh, not, okay. he's, right. he's, he hasn't opened a shop or anything like that. But he is basically, um, he's, he's the kid in town that you take your watches to. Now, three years prior to that, when he was 12, in 1875, he saw a Nichols and Shepard road engine for the first time. Now, he lived on a farm, but he did not ever like farming. Uh, and so Henry went to Detroit to become an apprentice machinist. Uh, he returned to Dearborn, Michigan in 1882. So let's see. In 1875, he was 12. So add seven years to that. So he's 19. He'd also learned bookkeeping while he was apprenticing which will be, okay. be very handy. At this point, he started experimenting with building engines in the farm's workshop, and he was immediately discouraged from using steam or electricity due to the size needed for a boiler. He's like, that shit's too lethal and too dangerous. Or the size needed for batteries 
for the electrical. And he's like, that's just not practical. It would be way too goddamn heavy um, at the time for what are called light vehicles. In other words, not huge machines that make the, the mill run, mm-hmm. but like, you know, cars and shit. The earliest okay. engine that I found mention of his building was in 1887. Okay. So, so, so he's 26, I think, or 25. Okay, so he so he built he built his own his first his own engine mm-hmm. at 26. So Just now, as an engine, not necessarily as a, a automobile, but an yeah, engine. Yeah, yeah, no, built an engine, mm-hmm. which which is the single most complicated part. In an right. early automobile, it has yes. it has the most moving parts involved. It has the most <laughs> things you've got to get right thing. within yeah. a certain amount of tolerance. All mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um. So, like the first thing that comes to my mind hearing mm-hmm. that is the level of casting or milling or machining mm-hmm. that's involved in putting together because, like, an engine block. Yeah is is a solid piece of metal that you have to either cast mm-hmm. or mill uh-huh. in in order to get you know the cylinders put in the direction you need them and all the screw holes and everything right. for, the, for the head and everything else the you know gaskets and everything else to be attached to and we're talking about this being an 18 what now uh let's see 1887 now he's apprenticing at a machine shop in detroit Okay. So he's got an in with okay. machinists, right? And he probably gets some spare time, you okay. know, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Also, an engine doesn't have to be that big to be a working engine, right? This so is true. It does okay. not have to be a Volkswagen engine. True. True. So, okay. Now, in 1891, so now he's in his late 20s. Yeah. Because uh, he's born in 1863. Right. Right. So he's 28, 27 years old. Ford was an engineer for the Edison Illuminating Company of Detroit. I love the okay, names. Of okay, okay, wait, yeah. wait, wait. Okay, yes. stop, stop, sure, sure, stop, sure. <laughs> Ford, Ford essentially worked for Edison. Uh huh. <laughs> Talk about a couple of evil motherfuckers. Uh huh. Uh, okay. Sorry, yep. just that. I couldn't let that go uncommented. Sure, sure. Un- unremarked. Okay. So he's working sure. for the Edison Illuminating Company of Detroit because if there's one thing that inventors are known for, it's short names for their companies. Within a couple of years, he had been promoted to chief engineer for Edison in Detroit. And, <laughs> and it, at this, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <clears throat> there's there's resonance there okay carry on it Sorry. would be like if you found out dr no was the <laughs> working for modok well i was gonna say the physician for goldfinger okay there you go you know that's, that's a better that's a better analogy <laughs> yeah yeah uh, yeah, yeah. Like, wow really so okay at this point he begins experimenting <laughs> on gasoline engines which leads to the 1896 invention of the ford quadricycle so he built his first engine in 18, 1887, and in 1896, he has built the quadricycle. Okay, so he's now in his 30s. Yeah, he's 35. Or no, 33. Uh, this is one of, this is the one, the, the one that's generally credited with being his first car. Not the first car, but his first car. Okay, yeah. He used bicycle tires, basic frame, ethanol engine. I found that part particularly interesting. 
This one he sold to a guy named Charles Ainsley for $200, which in I could not find a uh, uh, inflation calculator that goes back that far. But it's a lot of money. A lot of goddamn money. He a later bought it, money. bought it back for 60 bucks. <clears throat> See, that just proves that auto depreciation has been a thing since literally the beginning. True. The moment you drive it off the lot, <laughs> it loses half its goddamn value. Like, this is why my family never buys new cars. Like, <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, <laughs> now, interestingly, according to Ford himself, uh, he says, quote, in 1892, I completed my first motor car powered by a two cylinder, four horsepower motor with a two and a half inch bore and a six inch stroke, which was connected okay. by a counter shaft, by a belt and then to the rear wheel by a chain. I made my first car, dude. Like, okay, okay. Anyway, you you don't hang out with enough engineers. No, clearly, no, clearly I don't. Because because some of my best friends are engineers, and all of that sounds totally normal. Uh, are they listening? Because this next part's going to make them wet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the belt was shifted by a clutch lever to control speeds at. 10 or 20 miles per hour augmented See, in that voice it probably by a does. throttle well yeah yeah i fucking i don't know what any of this shit means it just it, okay you had a steering thing and you i think you could shift two gears i don't know d- d- i are, are you are you like trying to do performative humanities major stuff here <laughs> like no like i suffered <laughs> to write this god damn it like and this this wasn't the part that i suffered the most there's shit that i was like if i drank i would be in a stupor right now um that's coming uh but in the meantime (laughs) okay look okay i just interject here like my 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 closest friend from college is Mm -hmm. is in the process right now of building his own airplane wow yeah in his garage it's it's pretty fucking cool what is he a james taylor fan no oh no no Sweet no, dreams but, and flying machines and yeah, yeah, on the ground. No, I, I, yeah, I don't get it, but no, okay. <laughs> I'm not even gonna. No, <laughs> I'm not gonna dignify it. Um, and and the the thing you need to understand about anybody with an engineering kind of mindset is mm-hmm. those details are inseparable from the rest of the story. Like if you just said, "I built my own car," that's 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 not the whole story you, sure. you you have to explain like how you built it like be, because you know 70 percent of why it's awesome is like and this is how i solved the problem yeah Let's see yeah so okay all, all right all right me. you you don't you don't speak tech I, priest it's i don't fine. okay I don't cool. that's fine it's cool for them i think okay, that's yeah wonderful. carry on carry on um there was more but people are driving and listening to our podcast and i I don't want them to fall asleep at the wheel so so i'll skip ahead to the sexy part quote in the spring of 1893 the machine was running to my partial satisfaction and giving an opportunity to further test out the design and material on the road uh that would Literally, translate. It probably actually sounded a little bit like that. Probably, it you would know. translate to about a thousand miles worth of driving over the next two years. 
Oh, wow. Uh, All right. Yeah. For the time period, that's pretty fucking impressive. Just think of what his spine Actually. must have felt like. <laughs> oh, Jesus. No, imagine how much taller he would have been in later life if he had found a different career path. Right? <laughs> It's it's very likely that the quadricycle was the first made for commercial consumption, whereas the first one that he'd completed and experimented on was his prototype. Okay. So in 1896, Ford met with a number of Edison executives and met with Thomas Edison himself. Um, they talked. Edison encouraged Ford to experiment more with making automobiles, which led Ford to making another one in 1898. So I like the cut of your jib, son. I'm going to keep going over here with electricity and all the stuff that's going to make your shit work. Uh, you go ahead and make more of that shit because factories. I don't think Edison actually had that kind of forward thinking when it comes to that specifically. Um, but it certainly was in Edison's best interest that Ford continued making shit that would eventually require automation and electricity. Yeah. I, I I would just argue that probably Edison looked at Ford and went, you're a similarly ambitious, technically minded, rapacious motherfucker. Yeah. Go get so, him, son. Go get him. Yeah. I, I don't I don't think it's even even as calculated as oh, this is gonna require automation. No, no. 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 I because Edison I, put a lot of his effort into the invention of a thing or stealing yeah. the idea for the invention of a thing. Um, he didn't put a lot of his idea into the well, he didn't successfully put a lot of his thinking into uh, the marketing thereof and the the commodifying it. Oh, no, like, that's that's what he had. That's what he had Westinghouse. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say that's what he had Westinghouse for. But I mean, he did also try like hell to make New Jersey and Philadelphia. Well, I don't know if it's Philadelphia specifically it's just Pennsylvania, but Jersey and Pennsylvania to be the center of American cinema. And a bunch of people out West were like, Nah, there's natural light out here. Fuck you. <laughs> like, we're we're gonna do this. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, good which, point. Which led to suntans and sunglasses. Yeah, as well as uh, some actresses getting involved in gangbangs with the USC football team, uh, which included John Wayne. Uh, I'll have to hunt that down for you. Somewhere in yep. the middle of that, there's a leap that I didn't entirely follow, but well, USC was the university of Southern California. Well, yeah, and yeah, there no, was a lot that's... of cross pollination with actors and actresses in Hollywood. Okay. Yeah. Who would get involved in gang banks with the USC football team. Okay. Yeah. So the stuff that I didn't need to research still makes it in. Uh, <laughs> so in 1890, 1898, uh, Ford uh, makes another automobile, and then he quits from the Edison company to start his own business. Uh, he then gets capital backing from a guy named William H. Murphy, who was a lumber baron in Detroit, and he founded the Detroit Automobile Company in 1899, which right. fell over and sank into the swamp. I mean, it failed a year and a half later. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, Ford, um, you know, he said something or it was either him or Edison where it's like, you know, I, I failed like 40 times so I could succeed the 41st or some shit like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Ford absolutely did that with business for a little while. He really did. Now, remember, he did learn bookkeeping, but that doesn't necessarily mean that his mechanical mind transferred over to marketing successfully the idea or or you know. i mean even, even though you i mean you you can look at a set of of accounting tables 
right and see you know inflow outflow and still think well you know but my idea is a giant killer right you know and and not understand that like the public is not fucking ready for this yet yeah yeah this is not going to go the way you think it's going to go right or it's going to go slower than you want it to yeah yeah now he then continued to make racing vehicles speaking of slower um no wait i'm sorry that that doesn't come until later uh first he uh he he works on making a better automobile and he starts the henry ford company in november of 1901 uh so Mm -hmm. his his other company failed 11 months earlier he makes this new company with the help of other stockholders uh including murphy again and a guy named c harold wills who would be recorded as the very first or at least one of the very first employees in the henry ford company now it's called the henry ford company This company would later change its name to Cadillac Automobile Company after Ford left um, because Murphy was looking at what's going on. He brought in a guy named Henry Leland, who was another inventor, and Ford was like, man, fuck that. I'm out. Um, Pride. Um, Well, yeah. And then he starts making these racing vehicles because he's like, I'm going to show him. Um, And he's trying to prove the quality of his goods. What better way to prove that uh, vehicles, uh, horseless vehicles are really cool than to make them go as fast as possible and have people race them. Um, and he started another company, several actually, with uh, a bunch of other wealthy extraction capitalists. Uh, in 1902, with the backing of Alexander Malcolmson, this time a coal baron in the Detroit area, uh, he formed Ford and Malcolmson Limited. The the least they they both leased a factory and they contracted with a machine shop that was owned by John and Horace, the Dodge brothers, uh, who supplied them with one hundred and sixty thousand dollars in parts, which I did find a calculator here is roughly the equivalent of four point five million dollars worth of parts. Yeah. Wow. Now. Again, though, sales were slow, and the Dodge brothers demanded payment for their first shipment of parts. Um, In order to save the company, they went a little Ponzi scheme uh, before Ponzi got here. Uh, Malcolmson got other investors to invest, and then they created a new company, which the Dodge brothers accepted partial ownership of. Ford and Malcolmson then became Ford Motor Company which also then had uh, the Dodge brothers as investors, as well as future Detroit mayor and Michigan Senator James Cousins, as well as candy maker and Detroit banker and uncle of Malcolmson, John Gray, who came on as the president because Malcolmson was like, Ford, you need to chill out. We want (laughs) someone who's president who's a little more chill. How about the candy man? Eventually, This leads to the Model T in 1908, which was a very simple to use, easy to repair, standardized and relatively inexpensive automobile. It cost $825, which back then was the equivalent to just over $23,400 in today's money, which I found fascinating because you look at the cost of sedans. It's not not too far far off. Yeah. In fact, it was cheaper about 20 years ago. Right, we're talking like yeah. ten to thirteen thousand. Yeah. Now, this leads to a tremendous publicity campaign on Ford's part. See, this is what he was good at. 
1914, there were more than a quarter million Model Ts that were sold, and the price kept dropping. By 1918, a majority of cars in the United States were Model T cars, which means that the Model T became the standard by which all others were compared. To the point where it's entirely likely that a vast majority of car drivers by World War II had first been trained on a Model T. And that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That follows. I can see that. Ford wanted to make an affordable automobile, right? Thus cornering the market and becoming very, very rich. And while that might sound uncharitable of me, he conned his investors into selling him controlling ownership in 1918. He then turned the presidency of Ford Motor Company over to his son, Edsel, right after World War I ended. Okay, wait. Stop. Mm-hmm. You're telling mm-hmm. me that the name Edsel was, was his was, was his. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. He was a disappointment <laughs> like... in many ways. Yeah. Uh, right. He then started the Henry Ford and Son Company, and he made a big show of taking himself and his best employees over to the new company. And then he convinced or scared his stockholders in Ford Motor Company to sell their shares to him so before they'd lose all value. And then when they did, he and his son purchased the remainder from the other stockholders, giving his family full total control and ownership over a previously public company called Ford Motor Company. Okay. So he basically through chicanery mm -hmm. wound up holding full ownership of the company that became the juggernaut yes four four years later he bought lincoln motor company which had been founded by henry leland and his son and then he pushed them out of that company now by the mid-1920s ford actually shut down production for 18 months in order to retool and set up a new auto plant He continued innovating and retooling, resisting new technologies that he didn't create. And he did so without ever having an accounting department or opening his company to the public. In 1956, the Ford Motor Company finally went public, which necessitated public accountability, which means they finally had to have an accountant. He used to actually weigh his his invoices by weight to determine how wealthy he was doing. Literally, like how much do these invoices weigh this month? No accounting. Yeah. He had that... a background in bookkeeping though. I know, but he was, I got to invent shit. Okay. <laughs> like, like I'm having a hard time forming the words mm-hmm. to express how completely batshit that is yeah like so what okay mm-hmm. and, and and now and i'm gonna need to go off on a tangent sure because because this is henry ford we're talking about who yes. is is weighing his invoices to try to figure out how good his business is yeah and then and then like decades later we have uh howard hughes who was <laughs> who was yeah. who was and and aeronautic genius mm-hmm. like who 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 was a visionary yes 
uh, responsible for for some remarkable feats of aviation engineering. Mm-hmm. And and he was, I mean, part of what he's famous for is being batshit crazy. Yeah. You know, massive germaphobe, huge OCD, you know, anxiety issues, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to point out here as part of this discussion that that the movie The Aviator is an amazing, an amazing performance by Leo DiCaprio playing him. And it's it's an it's an incredible biopic. But I've never gotten around to seeing it. I need to because I like Alan Alda. And he it's, plays a right bastard in that oh, one. Oh, oh, he is such a shit heel. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, but but is that where know, the meme come from? Where he's one? like got the cigarette and he's pointing and going, Oh no, that's great. Uh no, that's Wolf oh. of Wall Street. Oh. I want to say that's Wolf of Wall Street, where he's okay. where he's where he's sitting and pointing. Okay. Is is Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. There aren't, you know, there aren't that many memes from the aviator. There's a bunch from Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's and there's a bunch from, from Wolf of Wall Street, but for some reason the Aviator gets overlooked, and, and that's kind of a shame because if any movie deserves to be memed, it's that one. <laughs> but but like I mean, getting back to Howard Hughes himself, mm-hmm. he was he was this this he had this amazing inventive mind, but he was also like stone cold batshit nuts, right. And and like this is this is a trope from way back that like you know the creative geniuses are the ones that are that are you know batshit nuts, mm-hmm. but like you kind of look at these two guys and and Ford having this incredible mechanical mind. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, um, but at the same time, having having the common sense that God gave a snail, <laughs> like. <laughs> Well, again, you come back no. to that watchmaking thing that you said. No, my okay. manipulation of the thing and my control of the thing makes the thing work really well. I and okay. I alone. Okay. Yes. I and I. Okay. All right. I that that makes that, sense. I think that you really cracked the code on him, quite honestly, in that in that very first sentence about his amateur career as a watch uh, repairman. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right. So he perfected an industrialized process, as we know, on building cars, and he used his assembly line. Uh, this enabled him to pay a lot of people very little money as they didn't require over-specialization or knowledge, and the steps which they were trained in were easy to train someone else in. Uh, thus, a lot less worker power, ultimately, uh, which means you could lower the cost of production, mm-hmm. which is a fascinating juxtaposition to how he actually started because he started by granting a $5 wage to his employees in 1914, which was a thing unheard of. Um, oh, yeah. It was incredible. And he said, oh, yeah. yeah, I don't want constant turnover. I want these employees happy and I want them doing things. And it definitely brought workers to Ford. In fact, I have a family who crossed over the Ohio River to come to work for him and set up my maternal line as being from Dearborn, Michigan. My paternal line also comes from Dearborn, but not for that. So further, Ford set up something called the social department. And that department was a spy department on his employees. It looked into their activities away from work. If you avoided gambling, if you avoided being a deadbeat dad, if you avoided heavy drinking, carousing, and anything else that the 50 investigators 
and their support staff would find objectionable, you were eligible for profit sharing. Just out of curiosity. Sure. So he's setting this system up in 19 what now? Uh, that was, let's see, at least 19... I want to say that was in the 20s. I don't have a specific date as to when he start, set up the social department. Did he, um, did he subcontract to the Pinkerton company? Not that I could find. I was looking okay. specifically for that. Okay. No. Because right, your brain and mine went to the yeah. same exact direction. And here's okay. why he didn't. You don't contract out. You keep that shit in house. Natch. Okay, neither, neither a borrower nor a lender. Or a lender B. Yeah, right. Okay. Now, uh, I'm not saying unions here, by the way. I don't know if you noticed. Oh, I noticed. Yeah. Now, oh, I noticed. Now, yes. Ford, when it came to World War I, was dead set against World War I. Now, he wasn't against it for the reasons that you and I would be against it, you know, because war is a really fucking bad idea for humanity or like we're pacifists. No, he was against it because it was a waste of productivity. Every worker killed is one fewer worker. It's one more person with training that you put money into who's now dead. And that argument actually does work long term from an economic perspective. Like war is never, ever profitable unless it's a war specifically to go steal other people's shit. And even then it takes a while for it to turn around for you. Um, well, and, and even the, and, and then it's not sustainable. Look at the Roman Empire. Right. It, it's like law of diminishing, diminishing returns. Eventually you run out of shit to steal from people. I mean, you're kind of talking yeah. about capitalism in general, but yes, kind of, but <laughs> you know, I'm going, I'm going to the yeah. wellspring. Like, yes. You know. yes. Now, if you build a bomb, the best case scenario is that it works and you cannot reuse that bomb. It will also kill a bunch of their workers in the process. Now, if you build a bomb and it doesn't work, you also cannot reuse it because it did not work. So okay. Ford is like, none of this shit makes sense. If you make a thing from a, from a purely yeah. uh, a rationalist economic standpoint, none right. of this is logical. Right. Why are we spending money on this? This is a waste of capital. It's a waste of labor. It's a waste of everything. Exactly. Even okay. if this works, this wastes capital. Like, yeah. Um, now, he absolutely co-opted pacifists to push his anti-war message, uh, even though his motives were very different. Entirely uh, pecuniary. But I don't really mind a big tent peace brigade, so I'm cool with that. Um, but when he went to neutral countries, he got mocked hard because they didn't see his pacifism as pacifism. They saw him for what he was. The huckster? Uh-huh. Well, okay. or a person who was an unfeeling, unthinking about humanity person and cared more about machines and the efficiency of their operation than he cared about the humanity of the people not being killed. Yeah, I can see how the Belgians wouldn't like him very much. Right? <laughs> like, I'm uh, I think sorry, he actually we just got marched over by the German fucking army. Uh, no. Sweden and the Netherlands specifically, like, had had like mocked him when he when he came to port um on this on this tour um that i can see that yeah now yeah. once the united states entered the war he did what most american patriots did and he got real quiet about his pacifism and his overseas factories 
supplied Britain with plane engines and his U.S. factories did the same thing for the U.S. plane engines as well as anti-submarine boats. So he, even though he was against the war, he retooled his shit to sell things for war. And of course, he also made lots of weapons. Um, and there was, you yeah. know, like there's there's a part of this that is, well, mm-hmm. okay, this is the course of action the country has decided on. Right. I'm going to do my part. There's also more to the point, I think, for Ford, well, okay, it's wasteful, but they're paying me. But that first part's really important too. Like he straight yeah. up said munitions is is going to be short-term profitable, but long-term it's going to harm production overall. And that'll slow innovation. And I think this is the real thing. His wealth was a tool toward innovation for him. At some point it becomes keeping score and it does become the the emblem by which he measures his success but i think at this stage of the game he cares so much more about being able to innovate and you can't do that with dead workers you can't do that with blown up shit and you need everyone's workers and everyone's shit working because then that will get all the machines going and you can come up with cool new stuff okay innovation for innovation's sake being the goal yeah, I mean, look at what yeah. he did. He, you know, didn't like farming, even though he was left the family farm. And it was a it wasn't hyper lucrative, but it was a family farm that had been left to him. So it's clearly yeah. doing all right. And he's like, no, nah, I want to do machines, you know, and he kept quitting. He's a technocrat. Yeah. Um, so when the war ended, Woodrow Wilson encouraged Ford to run for Senate. Because Wilson basically was like, look, I, I need more support for the League of Nations. You liked peace. Run for Senate. Okay. And right, Ford, said, that. Right. Ford said, all right, I'll run, but I'm not going to spend any of my own money. Um, and he lost, but actually not by much. Okay. Uh, he support, so if he'd actually put the effort in, he probably, we would be talking about Senator Ford as well. Uh, he did support the League of Nations as a private citizen um, and as an industrialist. Uh, but not as a legislator because he didn't win. Yeah. Um, he even funded speaking tours in support of it. Like he genuinely believed in League of Nations because again, it comes back to this, this is good for business. Exactly. Mm. Now, by 1922, Ford claimed that it didn't exist as a social demo, uh, or he he claimed that the social department didn't exist anymore. He stated in his memoir, you know, so the thing spying on people thing. Um. In his memoir, he stated, quote, welfare work that consists in prying into employees' private concerns is out of date. Men need counsel and men need help, often special help. And all this ought to be rendered for decency's sake. But the broad workable plan of investment and participation will do more to solidify the industry and strengthen the organization than will any social work on the outside. Without changing the principle, we have changed the method of payment. Now, he's writing in a memoir after the fact, but he thinks that a good, healthy, decent worker is a productive worker. Okay, so, I mean, I can't disagree with the idea that a worker who is healthy is going to be a better worker. I would even say one who does not engage in, in excessive vices is probably going to be a better worker too. Okay. Granted. I, I will, I will even go that far. There, there is a really 
profound paternalistic overtone there, though. Uh-huh. Like, <sighs> yeah, there is there is so much Puritan in that. It's it's remarkable. Some Yankee ass shit right there. It really some, is. Some intensely Yankee ass shit and yeah. and some really like I'm trying to figure out how to how to categorize it because you know the Puritans certainly had social hierarchy, but there was there was a very strong I want to say undercurrent, but a very strong thread of Mm-hmm. Like in the church, we're all egalitarian. We all right. pay. Our, we all pay. Our, we all pay our dues to the church. We're all members of the church, and you know, however much land you own, however much whatever else, when it comes to voting in the church, we all have the same vote in the church. Mm-hmm. There is a really powerful noblesse oblige, or or. Not not oblige. There's 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 a really powerful paternalist overtone here. Mm-hmm. Oh, he absolutely bought that into is, that. That is post Puritan. Yeah, well, it's this is also post Gilded Age. Remember that yeah, paternalism okay, was was big in his formative years. Okay. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. In 1926, he also starts the five day work week, which is 40 hours a, a week. Uh, a week. Yeah, he keeps like. Here's the wild thing about him. He keeps doing these great things, often for greedy and shitty reasons that seem to keep (laughs) coming back to, again, this will allow me to make better shit. Uh, He said, quote, it is high time to rid ourselves of the notion that leisure for workmen is either lost time or a class privilege. Uh, Eugene motherfucking Ford. Yeah, Eugene Debs called wants his quote back, you know, like kind of like, yeah. like, you know, we want, you know, eight hours for wake work, eight hours for rest and eight hours to do what we will. Right. Like, he, here's the thing with with Ford, he will and you'll see this again, again and again, he will resist, resist, resist. And then when it's when he does do the right thing, he doesn't just do the right thing. He does it all the fucking way. He is in with both feet. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, I can't disagree with him on this point. Like, right. You know, there's, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a very significant, you know, Catholic part of my brain. that's like, well, you know, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, it doesn't entirely count. (laughs) Well, I do keep pointing out that he's, his reasoning is, is suspect. I, I will say it's suspect because it, this also means that it's rebatable. As in, he can take it back at any time if he decides that it's actually better for his idea of productivity. Okay, now, also enough. notice, I'm still not saying unions. Uh, Ford no, fucking hated not. unions. Well, yeah. Yeah, he was wholesale against them. He straight up, I mean, boilerplate shit. Listen to this. Quote, the leaders don't help and the good work unions do can do is negated by that. Fuck you. Right. Now, in full disclosure, I'm very pro union. <laughs> so anybody who's listened to this show probably knows that more than a few episodes knows <laughs> that you you are and remain you have been are and remain a union rep. Yes. And up until very recently, 
before I moved to my new site, I was also one. Yes. So our positions on, on unions are, are basically in lockstep and, yeah. and are, are shaped very much by the fact that we're both public school teachers. Yeah. And history which, teachers at that. Yeah. And, like. and, you know, like, okay, so give me a social studies education and then throw me into a job where I am undervalued by society at large and I have to deal with, you know, management who are constantly looking for any excuse to undercut me. Oh, and I can unionize. Okay. Okay. Like, I think I'm going to fucking do that. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's a, in, in our job, it's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. Like quite so. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. I got nothing else to add there. Just like, well, Here's here's Ford again on his opposition to unions, right? So basically, if you think about his stance against them, it was based in this idea that unions are self-defeating because Ford thought that they stood in the way of progress and productivity. And since he saw things in terms of mechanics, he saw things as pressure and innovation. And if a job got more productive and needed fewer workers, then other jobs would open up in in the economy for those workers. You can reuse a cog after all. It's, it's a, it's a mechanistic view Mm -hmm. of economics. It's a mechanistic view of the universe and it's a very self-serving view it's also very loyal to the system that he is accepting as being inevitable and already extant. It's like when my students in economics, they'll be like, well, if the, the goal is to maximize profit and that means you lower cost and you maximize, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and they always get to this point where I just look at them. and I'm like, you do realize you just justified slavery, right? And half of them will double down. Because at that point, they're invested in the system's existence. And the yeah. other half are like, oh, shit, you just played oh, us. And it's like, mm, you yeah. played yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you played and, yourself. Bro. And he is absolutely 100% loyal to the narrative and the system. And like, it's like when someone gets an idea in their heads, they will nurse it well beyond what's healthy way too often. Well, you know, and and... Bear with me for a second, because sure. this is this is going to go in a, in, a, in a bit of a weird direction. Okay. Um, on my lunch break, I peruse Reddit, and one of the subreddits I go to is Ask Men. Okay. Which is which is remarkably a lot less toxic and ugly than I would expect. Uh, it's generally actually pretty wholesome, but there was there was a guy who posted a question uh, about if you have an income that mm-hmm. is significantly larger than your partners. Like if you're, if you're the one bringing in nearly all of the money, okay. What is the advantage to getting married? And like that, that very question begs the question in such a way that it's commodified a partner. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. And the thing is, and and the reason I bring this up is because that's the same kind of mindset Mm -hmm. that you see with, with Ford. It's, it's Mm -hmm. everything is transactional. Everything is commodified. And it's like, you can't really put a dollar amount 
on human dignity. Right. You can't really put a dollar amount on an individual worker's right to say, okay, now look, I'm done. I need a break. Yeah. Or I'd like or, to talk to the guy working or, next to or me. Or I'd like to, I'd like to be able to talk to the guy working next to me or, you know, the, the, you know, it, it's, 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 it's been shown and mm-hmm. I, I don't have like specific, I can't cite anything here, but I, I know from, from, from studies and I, I, I have heard that from, you know, people who have done studies, mm-hmm. you know, we know that we as a species humans as mm-hmm. as the primates that we are we want to do work that is meaningful mm-hmm. right and and if we don't have a job to do we fall into depression there's all kinds of bad stuff that happens we want right. we want to work yes but at the same time that work has to give us some kind of meaning or some kind of reward mm-hmm or we might as well not be doing it. And we slip into the same kind of depression, all that other stuff. And one of the things that's part of the role of a, of a union, especially mm-hmm. in any kind of mechanized work, like factory work is to give workers the ability to stand up as a group and say, no, right. You know, and, and, and to be able to, to exert a level of power and, and folks who want to folks like Ford, mm-hmm especially you know corporate types in in management positions it's really easy for them and really convenient for them mm-hmm. to make the moral assumption that like well you know um if you if you don't want to be more productive then your motivation must be that like you're lazy and you just don't want to work you know as opposed to well okay no what you're trying to say is going to improve uh, efficiency is also going to cause hardship, right? You know, what you're, what you're calling for is uh, going to lead to abuse Mm -hmm. by and, and there, and it's really easy for folks at the upper end of a power dynamic to ignore or, or choose to not notice that, yo, there's a power dynamic here. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and the only option that workers have is to band together as a group and say, no, you fuck with one of us. You're fucking with all of us. But at the end of the day, a union's power is a means to an end to be able to stop working. A watch does not stop working. Granted. And that is Ford's problem with them, right? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, like I said, when you get an idea in your head, you will nurse it well beyond what's healthy to do, right? Yeah. Uh, like to the point of hiring and promoting Harry Bennett to keep his workers from unionizing. And eventually, when you're right, you still have to convince other people by using violence. No. No? I'm going to quibble there. Oh, oh if, okay. If you're actually right, you shouldn't need to use violence. Oh, I'm just going to say, I mean, maybe it's the hippie dip Catholic in me, but I don't <laughs> think that's the way that's supposed to work. Oh, well, we're going to oh, wait. It- oh, wait. Did I yeah. miss your sarcasm filter again? No, no. Because that sometimes happens. Yeah. Okay. 
So we're going to leave it there, actually, because okay. I think hiring Harry Bennett is a great way to start the next episode. Uh, so, <laughs> If you want me to dig out a third beer. Yeah, uh, yeah, you okay, should, because cool. this was the shit that led me to want to drink. Uh, so it's okay. Yeah, right, good to know. Bet good you wish know. I was talking about Morris dancers, huh? Uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to when we can get back to that. Right. Because I know, I know eventually we're going to come back around to it, but of course, wow. yeah, right. but yeah. So, uh, what you reading lately? Uh, well, I am, I am still, uh, mm-hmm. rereading, uh, the stolen by ah, Bishop yes. O'Connell. Bishop O'Connell book. Yeah. So it's uh, a debut book. If I recall, it was in yeah. fact, his debut book. He has since written several others. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh highly recommend it it's it's an amazing book and i'm not just saying that because you know he's literally my oldest friend Mm -hmm. um george is my oldest 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 one i'm still in touch with regularly um you know like uh, yeah no it's it's an amazing book i highly recommend it so that's that's what i'm reading okay how about you I'm reading IBM and the Holocaust, the strategic alliance between Nazi Germany and America's most powerful corporation. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to double down on my recommendation because I think it's going <laughs> to lead to less liver damage overall. Yeah, yeah, mine mine uh, is clear that I am happy with being miserable. <laughs> clearly. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah, this, yeah it's, I not hurt you. it's not yeah, good. It's not good. <laughs> not a healthy pattern yeah yeah but portentous where can people find you on social media i can be found on social media to you know not that we're changing the subject or anything um i can be found at mr underscore blaylock Mm -hmm. uh, on tiktok i can be found at eh blaylock on twitter and on instagram and where can they find you sir you can find me at uh, Duh Harmony One, two H's in the middle, uh, on TikTok. Uh, there's plenty of content there. If you want to hear any uh, really amazing puns, um, you can also uh, short ones and long ones uh, is is up to you. You can also find me at Duh Harmony, two H's in the middle, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, let's see. By the time this comes out, we will have already done the April first show. So look hey, for something? us in early May. All right. Um, uh, because uh, 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 I almost said a geek history of time. Uh, because capital punishment will uh will probably be back live unless that variant comes through and uh, sweeps through the land like did Delta and Omicron. And what are the odds of that happening? I mean, we let's, just about got you know, this thing. Let's, 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 for the moment, let's be hopeful and try to generate positive waves. Yes. Like, yes. Like, so look for capital punishment in Sacramento, uh, capital with an O, because it's a pun. Uh, look for us uh, and you can find us there. Uh, good. Cool. Yeah. And uh, did you say where we could be found corporately? I, I did not. Ah. Let let the people know where we can be found as a oh. unit. Geekhistorytime.com. Uh check us out there. If you don't like using the uh the the apps such as the Apple Podcast app or Stitcher, uh, if you don't like using those, you can go straight to our website and check us out there. Click around and find out, as I like to say. Uh and then I also like 
geek history of time on Twitter. Yes. Uh, so you could find us there and tell me what I got wrong about Henry Ford, especially you gearheads who think that I am just terrible for not giving a shit about a bicycle gear, tired. gear ratios. Oh my God. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm still getting over the fact that it used that it used bicycle tires. Cause I can't imagine that being anything other than like a rolling chiropractic adjustment. Oh yeah. Like, like that yeah. sounds goddamn miserable. <laughs> Tell you what, send us gifs of, uh, of, of Henry Ford's stuff there. There you go. So, I like it. Cool. Well, for geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, what's good for the auto industry is good for America. Wait, that's GM. <laughs>